Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Welcome back to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast. Hello, Andrea. Are you there? Uh, yep, I'm here, surprisingly. You're there in your car, having driven a couple of miles from your house. That dedication yep. to bring us the podcast today. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, I was not going to miss this, Alison. <laughs> so, I'll keep my fingers <laughs> crossed. I'll keep my fingers crossed that um, our internet connections stay good for the entire episode but um, if you're listening and something cuts out bear with us because Andrea is at the side of the road. (laughs) (laughs) So today um, as Andrea alluded we've got quite an exciting episode. We're both so pleased to welcome Marcus Patchett to the podcast. Marcus is a herbalist who practices in London um, and also the author of the most amazing book called The Secret Life of Chocolate. If you've been uh, following me on Instagram or seen any of my posts, you'll see that I've been delving into this book kind of the last six months and exploring the chocolate. And I really don't know where to start <laughs> just trying to describe the book. It's, it's 700 pages, more than 700 pages, and it's the most wide-ranging exploration of cacao that I've ever seen. I read it from cover to cover. <laughs> it's a tone that I feel like there's a lifetime's worth of research, so much medical, so much chemical, so much psychological, so much spiritual, so much historical, and so much mythological information about cacao. It's really changed my viewpoint on cacao and got me so excited to work with it in different ways. Yeah, you uh, may have heard Allison and I talking about this book on episode six, which was six books we love. And Allison brought this one. And so go back and listen to that. She read a little passage from there that just uh, left me smitten with the book. So I'm going to read to you what's on the cover of the book as it describes the book really well. The Secret Life of Chocolate is a book about chocolate, not the sweet, mass produced, fatty confection most of us are familiar with, though. This book is about old school chocolate, pre-Columbian, Central American, bitter, spicy, foamy, intense, blow your socks off chocolate, chocolate beverages made with toasted cocoa beans, water, and indigenous plants. And Allison, I've definitely seen you put so much on Instagram about what you're exploring with cacao and how this has totally inspired you, what you're learning, what you're trying. So I'm so excited to have the actual author of this book here. So welcome, Marcos. Yeah, welcome. Thank you, you guys. That's a really lovely intro. Thank you. (laughs) So thrilled. Well deserved. (laughs) Yes, well earned. So Marcos, um, Allison and I always start the podcast off by asking each other, what was the last meal you had before you got on to record? So I'm going to ask you, what was your last meal before 
fun here. <laughs> that's, that's it's 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 a bit deflating actually. It's not that exciting today. I should have made sure it was something cacao based, but it was just uh, some uh, roasted sweet potatoes with kidney beans and some some of my own fermented chili sauce. I do like a bit of homemade fermented chili sauce and tahini and some steamed broccoli. So well basic, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it sounds Lovely. delicious. Doesn't sound deflating. What do you put in the chili sauce? Oh, it's just um, Scotch Scotch bonnet chilies mostly, uh, and a couple of um, like Romero, you know, the pointy peppers. Um, and I use uh, all the Scotch bonnets and one uh, like a couple of Romeros are raw, and then a couple of them I roast and then skin. Um, and then all the raw peppers get fermented, and then the roast peppers they just get frozen, and then they, they get bunged in just as I blend it all together. Cause I found that if I ferment the roasted pepper, it seems to encourage the growth of not so friendly bacteria. Whereas mm -hmm. if I just ferment the raw stuff that really works. And then I add the roasted pepper in as a bit of sweetening at the end. So yeah. <laughs> really? That's really interesting. What do you mean? I've never done hot beans. Oh. <laughs> Well, I was kind of inspired by by your, I mean, your episodes on, it was really funny when I, I listened to your episode about the books that we love and you had my book on it, which is amazing. And then you were, you were really into Sandor Katz's book and his art of fermentation. I've been a, a long time fan of that book. I absolutely adore it. Um, and I'm not as far down the fermentation path as you guys. Like I still, I mean, I did, I made sourdough pita breads, but I haven't done proper bread making yet, but I quite like doing sauerkraut and fermented vegetable stuff. So it's just sort of playing along those lines. Mm. Okay. Sounds nice. Andrew, did you ask me what I had for lunch or not? Yeah, yes. I was wondering what you had. Lots of combo. <laughs> I had a roast pork belly from the farm around the corner, absolutely delicious with crackling that I um, sort of stabbed with some sage and from the garden and some salt and, um, some olive oil and then we had roasted beets and onions with it and some sourdough 100 barley sourdough bread with it. it was delicious mm. and have you even managed to eat this morning andrew or did you just get up throw clothes on and get in a car <laughs> allison i'm such a hero i set my alarm for four o'clock and oh. <laughs> did all my chores before i left and ate breakfast so remarkable i know <laughs> Yeah, I had just my usual breakfast, which is a couple of our eggs, and I put um, some, I made uh, raw yogurt or like raw milk yogurt, you know, forever ago, but <laughs> then I mixed in dill and some of the juice from my garlic dill sauerkraut and made it into a sauce. So I put that on the eggs and some of the sauerkraut as well. Oh, so good. And then a little bowl of fermented oats with some raw milk and honey and had some orange juice and ninja. And I mixed in some hydrolyzed collagen just to boost my protein for the day. So yeah, basically my normal breakfast. Oh, you had a, you had kind of a feast then considering well done for getting up at four. That's impressive. Yeah, I know. Awesome. Okay, let's move, <laughs> let's move on. Let's move on to the book. So the first question I've got for you, Marcus, was really, I think it's very rare to see such a wide ranging, complete exploration of a topic as The Secret Life of Chocolate is. Tell us why you wrote the book. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think I, I've always been a bit of a, a 
Well, that's not true. I was going to say I've always been a bit of a chocoholic, but no, that's not true. I wasn't when I was a teenager. I mean, I terrible food as a teenager. I mean, you can't even call it food, really, what I ate as a teenager. But then when I moved down to London, I I, I did get kind of into chocolate. And I, I even recount bits of this in the book about how when I was in my clubbing, naughty, hedonistic, like late teens, early 20s, art student days, I'd come in after a weekend and like have my favorite post-clubbing thing was a bowl of bananas, like with melted dark chocolate on them so i've always been a bit of a chocolate head and then i got interested in herbal medicine and i went off to do a herbal medicine degree after i finished my art degree and um i sort of had this idea in my mind like i'd i've I'd be always been interested in psychotropic substances. I mean, first of all, from a purely naughty art student recreational point of view, and then more from a sort of pharmacological point of view. Um, and I, I think chocolate, chocolate, what it became interesting to me, partly because I loved it, partly because it was ubiquitous, and partly because I think that the things which are so familiar to us are consistently underrated in a, in a way if you know what i mean like coffee tea whatever because we're so familiar with them it's like oh that's just that thing um so it was uh, so it basically i had a bit of a fascination with it as many people do because it's chocolate um and then when i started doing the herbal degree i started realizing there was this whole other angle to it this whole sort of historical angle to it um and there were a couple of sort of things that gave me a bit of a bee in my bonnet about it. One was a book by Jonathan Ott, really good ethnobotanist. He's written a lot about psychotropic plants. Uh, he's written a, a famous book called Pharmacotheon about hallucinogens and stuff like that. Um, but one of his little and lesser known books was, I think, written in the 80s. And it's called, I think, Chocolate Addict, Tales of an Unabashed or maybe it's cacahuatl addict. I can't remember, but I think so. I think it's chocolate addict tales of an, an unabashed chocolate eater, and it's a very little, slim book, and it's brilliant. And really, it was the inspiration for me doing this book. But there was one thing he he, he said in there because he's very much in the mold of a sort of traditional. Uh, pharmacologically minded ethnobotanical type uh, in the sort of in the sort of post-Victorian mold of like let's find a plant, extract its active ingredient, and then that is the plant that is the bit that makes the whole plant work. So he was like, ah, chocolate, it's caffeine and theobromine, and these are the bits that make it go. That's why it has a traditional reputation as an aphrodisiac. Really, that's all it is. And I just had this big sort of, no, that can't be it, you know, because <laughs> I like coffee and I like tea and whatever, but chocolate does, does unique things for me. So that was the inspiration. And then I'd sort of the third reason, I guess, was by the time by the sort of time the course was drawing to a close, it was a five year degree. And by the end of it, I knew I wanted to write some sort of book which would get some of the ideas inherent in sort of herbal medicine and thinking about things, foods, products, medicines from a more holistic angle. And that that word has been so abused, holistic, but it. In, in its truest sense, meaning you can look at these things from a pharmacological angle, you can look at them from the mythological, you can look at them from the sociological, and you can tie all those things in. And, you know, even then you're only touching the tip of an iceberg of what something means. So it, it, I've said this before, and I, I like this image, it's sort of like, I wanted the book to be ideally 
uh, a sort of series, a, a series of nested Trojan horses made of chocolate. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like Russian dolls, but made of chocolate. So it's sort of talking about chocolate and its history, but also introducing these ideas about um, the chemistry of foods and natural products and how we relate to these things as societies and how they affect us as much as we cultivate them. And, you know, lots of other ideas that, that are in the book. So, so yeah, that, that, that was how it sort of came about. And then I started writing it. And if I realized at the time it would have taken 14 years, I'd have probably given up there and then, <laughs> you know what I mean? But anyway. Thank you. It's, it's really interesting to hear you talk about the kind of the whole plant. A lot of the other reading that I've been doing recently talks about how extracting things out of plants and then using them as medicine for a specific mm. purpose is very different to taking the whole plant. And it's interesting to, to hear that was part of your motivation that made you want to go deeper and deeper. Into yes, a hundred percent. I, I, I want to be clear. I'm not, I'm not like, uh, what's the word, fanatical or, or uh, evangelical about that. I mean, I think horses for courses broadly, um, you know, in, in the sense that if you have a, a broken leg, I don't want somebody offering me a, a cup of chamomile tea. I want a shot of morphine and, and, and a hospital job. Thank you very much. But on the other hand, this idea that plants can be reduced to single active constituents is you know, demonstrably wrong. It's, it's, it's not even in doubt that, that most medicinal plants are, and, and in fact, just like foods, just like foods, it's, I think I make the analogy in the book. It's like, it's as ridiculous as saying an apple is vitamin C with packaging. You know, it's like that the foods or, the, or these uh, medicinal plants have been empirically selected over millennia by people for their properties. So it's entirely reasonable to assume that their constituents will be acting in concert, if not synergistically, then at least in reliable ways to produce a sort of spectrum of effects um that, that are beneficial so uh, that's not to say of course that some plant drugs aren't toxic of course they are um like i say this is the, it's not without nuance you don't have to be evangelical about it but it's just to me it's a it's a common sense thing that we seem to have lost sight of perhaps as a result of this um the the excitement of discovering you know, the enlightenment and the sort of the, the scientific way of looking at the world, which is undeniably so powerful. Humans, I think, throughout history, we seem to be drawn to dogma in everything. And I think that's just because we're always afraid of dying. We, we latch on to certainty at every possible opportunity, you know? So, oh, this, this is how things are. And then what we start doing collectively is excluding all other possibilities that don't fit our preconceived model of the world. And that causes problems. So I feel like now we're just in a, in a collectively in a process of of remodeling that a little bit and coming back to a more sort of networked, ecological, interdependent way of looking at it without losing the science, which is really exciting. So, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's take that kind of into chocolate. And most people listening to this probably wouldn't have read your book. So can you okay. describe the difference then between the secret life of chocolate as you've described it in your book and the chocolate that is all around us that we all know about in the western world <laughs> well uh i guess 
depends on what level that's meant. But I, I'm assuming, knowing your guys' podcast, that you're talking about the the, the food level and the quality. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So it's really the ancestral, the, the form of chocolate that I'm interested in is, is, as a herbalist is the traditional, is the ancestral, is the roots form of it. So originally it came from Central America, the region we now known as sort of Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and that sort of region. Um, and the beans, the, the, the roasted or toasted fermented beans were made into drinks with um, native plants from that region. And so the ancient forms of chocolate, and there, there, there were hundreds, if not thousands of varieties of these drinks, some very elaborate, some quite simple, um, but all basically made using the beans and water and indigenous spices, mostly not sweetened. Some were occasionally sweetened with a bit of honey or, or um, but that was about it. Uh, and some, some were drunk uh, with native maize flour. Sometimes that flour would be nixtamalized or toasted with lime to, or cooked with lime rather to, to sort of, um, as we now know that that process apart from changing the flavor also makes it, um, liberates niacin. It makes it more, more nu nutritious. Um, but anyway, so that those traditional forms were mostly liquid, unsweetened, um, and quite strong, potent, closer, closer to coffee than we would think of, uh, you know, a chocolate, but, but still recognizably chocolate, just bitter and um, much more powerful and more medicinal as well. So modern chocolate, modern confectionery is still made uh, for the most part using those beans. I say for the most part, because obviously there's the three types, there's dark milk and white chocolate, which, are, you know, we now know as the solid eating candy basically and all of those are made with cacao beans but your white chocolate is in my mind doesn't really deserve deserve the name of chocolate because it's made with um it is made with the fat from the cocoa bean which is why it's still called chocolate it's made with cocoa butter um, which is the fat extracted from the seeds of cacao but then it's just cocoa butter milk powder and sugar that's white chocolate your milk chocolate is cocoa butter milk powder sugar and a bit of the cocoa mass so-called which is just the ground up toasted or roasted beans and then your dark chocolate is um cocoa mass cocoa butter sugar so that has the most in common with but those that sort of all of those forms are um have additional fat and additional sugar and also the the processing of them it, it just because it's done to industrial standardization and it's there to maximize flavor rather than health benefits and it's it's there to maximize and standardize i should say really importantly as with all industrial processes to maximize and standardize so it eliminates all the, which I know you guys talk about a lot, like particularly when you're talking about bread, I get, I, I love listening to you guys talking about bread. You get really excited. It's, it's, um, you know, the variation with, with, when you're doing any natural quote unquote natural process, like that sourdough fermentation, the same with toasting cacao, you get such a wide range of flavors in a natural beverage I'm using natural in air quotes, but that, that in, in, a, in a beverage that you homemade, let's say, 
which you grind, you, you get the beans, you toast the beans, you grind the beans and you mix them with water. There's so much more depth and richness of flavor there because some of the beans will be slightly fermented. Some of them will be more fermented. Some of them, if you've toasted them by hand on a kamal, be really quite toasted and others will be less toasted, even if you're turning them constantly. So some of the beans will, you know, there's, there's a great deal more variation. And when you're industrially roasting them, they're typically roasted for longer and at higher temperatures, which reduces some of the health benefits and, and sort of flattens the flavor. And then they're conched, which is they're beaten in granite troughs with rollers for sometimes up to three days, 70, 70 odd hours, uh, in order to get a really small particle size for a smooth mouthfeel. Um, and that also causes a lot of a loss of volatiles. So um, this isn't to say that I'm not anti-eating chocolate, confectioner's chocolate, fine. It's great. It's interesting stuff. It's, you know, if it's, uh, I'm obviously more pro dark chocolate, um, but it, it, it's okay. But it's, to my mind, it's not a patch on and it's a very different animal from the traditional stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Andrea, I want to share Marcus with you. Otherwise I'm just going to take over. Have you got a question for him? <laughs> Oh, I think we might have lost Andrea. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. Well, then I might, I might have you all to myself. <laughs> That's all right. I thought she'd been quiet for a little while because uh, I know she likes to jump in and she hadn't. I thought, oh, I hope she's still there. Okay, <laughs> then, then I shall carry on. Tell me what for you was your high point in writing the book because I know you spent a long time on it and I can see how much research and through the photos as well, how much time and trips and everything went into it. What was the high point for you in the whole book? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think, um, yes, the, I actually, it was only three trips I did, but there were three six week trips. So I, I, I saved up and, you know, I'm, I'm a herbalist, so I'm not a billionaire, you know, tycoon type. It took a while to save up and fund the trips, but, you know, currency wise, obviously Mexico and Guatemala are quite favorable to us Europeans, but that the travel is expensive. So anyway, um, my, my highlight was probably, there are so many, obviously it's going to be a travel thing because, because my experiences in, in Mexico and Guatemala were, there were so many of them that were were kind of amazing. Um, I'm trying to think what was the highlight while I was there doing it, and then what was a highlight retrospectively, if you know what I mean. Because like one of my retrospective highlights would be um, meeting Mr. Reginaldo Huesh, who is the head of the um, this um, association of Itza Mea, the Asociación Bioitza in, in Guatemala. Uh, and he, he was a herbalist. And I think in his late 60s, early 70s, and I went to interview him and he showed me around his garden. And when he found out I was a herbalist as well, he basically just started teaching me and he was showing me all the plants and getting, it was brilliant. So, so that, that was a real privilege. And, and he gave me a copy of a book he'd written about sort of native, native plants there, which was, which was kind of amazing. Um, I mean, other than that, I think that, that there was the first trip when I went in 2008, that was, um, I met Susanna Trilling, who is a brilliant chef and author of a, a book called Seasons of My Heart about um, native uh, Mexican cooking, uh, Oaxacan cooking, which is brilliant. 
Uh, and it's actually, she did a TV show on, on that, I think in the nineties. And I contacted her before I left just as somebody who might be helpful. And she was so helpful. And she linked me up with this family of uh, Zapotec ladies, where it's actually like there were, I think there's seven ladies and one, and one man, the, the, the guy was like a painter and he brought in all the money. He was quite a famous painter locally. And uh, the ladies knew I was coming. So they all made this local beverage, which is quite famous in Oaxaca City. And the beverage is called Tejate. And it's made with uh, toasted cacao, toasted maize, um, these local flowers called Rosita de Cacao or little rose of cacao. That's actually that they're sort of like very aromatic flower, super aromatic. Like they don't lose their smell in like a hundred years dried. There are specimens wow. in the, in the air. Yeah, it's incredible. It's like kind of a combination of sort of, it's a very sort of perfumey, like vanilla, very akin to vanilla, but, but, but different, <laughs> like vanilla, but different, but very, very strong. And so they use a bit of those in there. Um, and, and some sort of fatty seeds, either the seeds of the, of this, uh, um, palm tree, um, or Bignia guacayule, or I think it's, it's the botanists have been at it again and changed the name to Atalea Cohoon, but the, the seeds of that. And, and anyway, it's, it's, it basically looks like a, this beverage when it's finished, looks like a big bowl of dirty washing up liquid with a load of suds <laughs> on it, but it's absolutely delicious because it's just sort of like this grayish liquid, which is made with the, the corn the masa it's not fermented i don't think in this case it's just straight up boiled corn masa uh with the ground sort of fatty seeds and aromatics and cacao in it and then this massive head of sort of blancmange like fatty foam on top that precipitates out of the beverage as they add water to it that's obviously all the fat from these fatty seeds that are added which picks up all the aromatics from the cacao and from the rosita and and so, so you get this beverage which is sold on street corners in Oaxaca uh, by ladies with these big tubs in front of them who, if, if you didn't know what they were, as I say, you'd probably think they were, I don't know, wash, selling, doing washing or something. But um, it's very popular in Oaxaca and you just go and buy a cup of it and it's like this sort of fatty uh, blancmange on top that sort of melts on the tongue and then this sort of nutty, cool beverage. It's really wow. refreshing. So I went who, and got Who needs a chocolate it. bar? That just sounds absolutely amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, but it's just remarkable seeing them. They were so friendly and, and so lovely. Like they uh, sort of went, went there and um, they watched them making... And I, it was the first time I'd got to try and grind anything on a matate. So they all got to laugh at the gringo trying to grind corn on a matate. Do you know what I mean? Like these, these women who've been doing it for like 50 years, who are just pros, who could grind anything to a paste within about 10 minutes, you know, watching this weak wristed European boy trying to grind something on a stone. They, they thought it was hysterical, but anyway. Um, I think that whenever I've gone to places and people have made me their food. It's been one of the most connecting, humbling, amazing things. So I can yes. just kind of imagine in my head the experiences she must have had doing them. Yes. I wanted to pick up on something you just mentioned in passing earlier, which was, you know, most of this chocolate was made unsweetened. Yeah. And really one of the things that excited me the most while I was reading your book was exploring and understanding my own personal relationship to chocolate. And really, for anyone listening, I mean, is there any other food stuff with which our relationships can become more tangled? <laughs> from my perspective, people who've listened to the podcast for a while know that I was 
overweight as a child and a teen and weighed twice the weight that I do now. I lost half my body weight. Mm. And I struggle to recount slightly that um, as a young teen, I would go into my mother's purse and I would take money without her knowing and I would go to the supermarket and buy kilogram bars of chocolate and then bring them home and eat them in secret in my room. Right. That's where my childhood issues with chocolate kind of, you know, when you, when you see that picture, you realize how deeply I was addicted to chocolate. And I think Andrea's back now. Are you there, Andrea? I think I am. (laughs) Excellent. So can you give us your relationship with chocolate and just give us a pricey of what, what you are with chocolate? Sure. Uh, Advance apologies to Rob for what is going to be a very challenging project with my (laughs) jumbled recordings. But with chocolate, um, I don't know that I necessarily had any issues with it, but I do remember at some point starting to realize that what I always thought was just delicious and the best chocolate, we'll say like a Hershey's chocolate bar, I started to realize it was actually kind of disgusting to me. And I just kept looking for better versions of chocolate. And um, I remember Gary bought me this really nice, expensive bar of chocolate. I don't know if it had any sugar in it or maybe a little bit of sugar. It was pretty bitter um, that I ate when I was in labor with Jacob, our firstborn. Um, and it was it just hit the spot for me at that moment. Um, and then somebody introduced me to making uh brewed cacao just the kind of i don't know partially ground cacao beans that you can brew like coffee basically and that became basically my new favorite thing so i'd say that's probably the way i get chocolate the most right now is that the the brewed cacao Huh. What's your relationship with chocolate, Marcus? Did you have a a history of kind of a bad relationship with it before you went on this journey? Not not really. I mean, that's it's fascinating. I've got so many tangents from what you've both said there that were just like, oh, oh, okay. (laughs) But yes, uh, (laughs) yeah. My my own my own relationship uh, with it is mostly positive not unmixed I, I i had a little spell of binge eating in my in my early 20s fortunately not very long lived and I, I do briefly mention that in a couple of places in the book because that was one of the things which which really piqued my curiosity because it was after my sort of like couple of years when i was going out partying and taking drugs at the weekend like lots of other art students were you know sort of like just being the dissipate like teenager and whatever doing that and then a sort of a, about a year later, I mean, there, there were other contexts, there were other things going on. I think a lot of my friends had sort of moved away and I was studying to, I, I had to do a, a year out to become, before I did the herbal medicine degree, I had to take, I didn't have any A-level chemistry or A-level biology or any of that stuff that I would have required. So I had to do a foundation course for a year, which I did really well on. And I made some lovely friends on, but I didn't, I didn't really feel like I had anyone who was on my wavelength. And, you know, so anyway, I was, I think basically I was going a bit nuts that year. So this all ties in with chocolate because I kind of got more obsessed with chocolate during that year. And it was sort of, I was developing a bit of a binge eating disorder 
of which chocolate was not a major component. It doesn't sound like it was like a, a big feature as, as with your relationship with it, mm. Alison, when you were a kid, but it was certainly there. And because I've always been an experimenter with foods, drugs, substances and stuff, I remember distinctly on one occasion when I'd had a massive, and when I say binge eater, I, I was trying to eat really healthy but I was doing it in all the wrong ways, like very restrictively. I didn't really know what I was doing. And then I would sort of like want to go and eat loads of rubbish, you know, loads of snacky, sugary crap, basically. Mm -hmm. So I'd done a massive binge on all this food night before. And I, I remember I'd, I'd literally been wandering around town. Literally, I had to go for a walk just to walk it off. And I remember I walked all around town until about 4 a.m., walked home. And then the postman rang the bell at about 8. And I'd only been asleep for a couple of hours. It's, I mean, bear in mind, I'm 20 and at this point unemployed. So you know, it was like time, what is time? But um, I, I answered the doorbell and he had two shiny silver pails of cocoa butter in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd ordered all this cocoa butter with the intention of trying to make some, you know, chocolate at, in the style of the raw chocolate people with cocoa powder and, and, and whatever. Um, so this was back in, this would have been in 2000. Uh, so this was before I did the herbal medicine degree, before I'd even conceived of writing the book and, you know, or anything like that. So it, there was, there is, there are some complications. I mean, all that got sorted later that year because I have a very sensible friend who recognized that I had a problem and knows me well enough to know that any form of psychological stuff probably wouldn't work. So she said, go and see a nutritionist. And this nutritionist was absolutely brilliant. She saw me and she said, most people I tell, I tell them to go away and, you know, they, I tell them to eat more healthily. You, I want you to go home, sit down and have a bacon sandwich. <laughs> she, <laughs> she was absolutely brilliant. And, and so I did that and I started feeling a lot better because I've been trying to do all this crazy healthy eating stuff from people like Gillian McKeith, who I yeah, just yeah. think, you know, like they, they advocate the craziest things and it actually feeds into, if you're in an emotionally unstable space, it can feed into eating disorder-like thinking, you know, like that kind of orthorexic thinking. So, mm -hmm. um, so anyway, uh, the, the, the chocolate was involved as it, there, but for, for the most part, it's been a positive thing. It never became a focus of a problem for me. And it's always been a mostly benign crutch for me, I would say, chocolate. It's enabled, like dark chocolate particularly, has fueled many things in my life. Like it's helped me get through lots of things. It always has a, a reliably positive effect on my mood. Um, but I, these days I have it maybe two or three times a week. I don't have it every day because I want to preserve the nice effect on my mood that it has. You know, it's like, mm. it's like, I don't drink anything with caffeine in it every day either. Cause I don't, I don't want to lose that little buzz. <laughs> so, uh <-huh. laughs> so, you know, yeah, getting habituated to it. Yes. I think yeah, it's, yeah. um, it, for some people it is a benign crutch, but for other mm. people like me, it certainly wasn't a benign crutch. No. And, um, and, and it, it totally depends as, as, as yeah. I, I think, you know, what I'm, I, I was interrupting Anson, but I, th I think it totally depends on the form, you know? So, so yeah. if it's the more added sugar, the more added yeah. fat, the more problematic yeah. it, it becomes, you know, which, totally. which, yeah. 
And you made that very clear in the book, you know, why the sugar and why the yes, added yeah, things yeah, to that, it that, that are was the whole, more addictive. Chapter seven, yeah, about the sort of the, I think, was it chapter, yeah, chapter chapter seven, I think. It's Chocolate, Love and Bondage Part Two. That That whole chapter talks about the problem aspects of chocolate like you know are th- what are there any health issues connected to it you know problems connected to it and is there any truth to those rumors or allegations and likewise what links are there between chocolate and disordered eating and and there are some for sure and there are some really interesting pharmacological sort of potentials there we know that you know because uh, you read it Alison you know about the the sort of the, the studies with the rats and you know if they're being given chocolate to eat it it makes them it, it that the flavor of chocolate lights their brains up with endorphins, you know, so of 120% of baseline, but it's not that it doesn't seem to be the cacao alone that's doing it. It seems that it's facilitating the pleasure response, uh, something along those lines. And then human studies with chocolate flavor, they found that just chocolate flavored foods, they did a, a little, very simple little study with, I think with a chocolate flavored versus a vanilla flavored yogurt or something. And uh, then they deprived people of those foods and then they allowed them to eat them again and it was only the the chocolate flavored food group who ate more of it they they really wanted more of it they felt that lack of it more acutely so and that's interesting because that's without the caffeine without a lot of the extra little what i call fairy dust compounds that you find in chocolate it's just the flavor alone so there is something very particular about about cacao and you know my hypothesis is that it's a it's a hedonic modifier it's something that modifies modulates the pleasure responses so it's so it's not simple actually it's not like this is a substance you can get addicted to per se but it certainly can i think modify other tendencies if that makes sense yeah it does it does Andrea, do you, do you want to ask a question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened. I'm sorry about that. Well, now that I know there's fairy dust in chocolate, it explains <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it changes everything. <laughs> so speaking of the these effects that you're talking about, there is a pretty large section in the book where you talked about cacao's application as medicine. Mm. And I was wondering if you could talk about the top three medicinal uses for cacao. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause th- there's a, there's a real division there between the, I should, I should just say, by the way, the fairy dust compounds is obviously that is my name. For them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Them. And I'm going to run with it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. It's, I call them that. Cause there are all these little trace compounds that on their own look like they're present in you know, the quantities are too small to do anything. But then when you stack them all up and look at the ways that they interact with each other, it's pretty clear that they should do something and do appear to do something. So that's my, that's why I call them fairies. Anyway, um, uh, the, your question was about the health benefits. I think um, there's a distinct division between the traditional sort of view of that and, and the sort of modern, following on from the pharmacological research, particularly into the polyphenols, the brown stuff, you know, the polyphenols, polyphenols are found in lots of plants. They are the constituents, which in many plants and of course, plant foods like fruits and veg are are responsible for so-called antioxidant effects. Um, So 
yeah, the, the, the modern research uh, into the polyphenols, the antioxidant constituents has tended to focus on the cardiometabolic properties of cacao. That is its ability to um, reduce inflammation in the linings of blood vessels, vascular endothelium, so-called, and to dilate blood vessels. So improving circulation a little bit. Um, and, and also to help with things like glycemic control to actually sort of improve insulin sensitivity, for example. So following on from that, the modern research suggests quite strongly that cacao is protective against heart disease and stroke and, and protective against type 2 diabetes. These effects probably on an individual level, not that strong, but will sort of knock down your risk points a few. And on a population level, if you have a whole population eating dark chocolate, they could be enormous. I think I did some sort of back of the envelope maths in the book, which probably some statistician will make some statistician somewhere grimace, but it was just sort of like, look, if every everyone ate all this dark chocolate we could massively reduce healthcare costs because if they ate the you know that the higher the higher the those dark chocolate polyphenols in the diet the more potential benefits there are from that um, and i do think higher doses particularly of the traditional drinks not so much of your candy bars with the extra fat and the sugar but with the traditional drinks could be useful in things like i mean i, I suggest in a in a monograph in the back of the book in the geeky section there's a really fat appendix in the back of the book so i wanted to make sure all the geeky stuff is in there for anyone who wants to geek out on it um the, the, some of those uses might be, for example, if you're recovering from, I mean, this is just totally hypothetical, but recovering from heart surgery, don't drink chocolate immediately because it's a, it'll dilate blood vessels and reduce clotting. And you might have some anticoagulants in your bloodstream and, you know, that could be problematic. But say a couple of weeks after your surgery, you could start drinking traditional chocolate. And that should, at least in theory, uh, you know, accelerate your recovery because it'll reduce inflammation in the linings of blood vessels. And I even did a little video on my tiny little YouTube channel last year, uh, talking about chocolate in, in COVID in the present pandemic about, we know that some of the effects of, of coronavirus, for example, long-term are to increase inflammation in, in blood vessels. Well, eating chocolate is protective against that. I'm not saying Cacao is not, unfortunately, a solution to the current pandemic, but it is something which as part of the diet could could be helpful uh, in sort of reducing the risk of long COVID or stuff like that. Um, but then the traditional uses um, are, are quite different. So the traditional uses would be like as a, as a tonic to, to uh, help with fatigue. And there is a small modern study in chronic fatigue uh, syndrome, which was very promising. It was only 10 subjects though, with no placebo group. So it's pretty difficult to draw a solid conclusion from that, but um, that's interesting. It was used traditionally as a tonic and it was used um, sort of as an obstetric agent combined with other plants to like, so that was super interesting. That was one of my tangents, Andrea, from when you were talking about how you had chocolate when you were literally giving birth, because it was used with other plants as a parturient traditionally wow. to help uh, during the delivery of baby, maybe because it's slightly relaxed, maybe because it's painkilling. Um, so I've, and I've heard from midwives in, in Central and South America that they recommend cacao beverages be drunk in the th first trimester, but not thereafter, which is very 
interesting, mm. but then could be drunk with other plants like oxytocic plants that increase contractions of the uterus during delivery. Do you know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. Um, and there's some modern research showing that cacao or chocolate eaten during pregnancy um, reduces the risk of preeclampsia, you know, gestational hypertension or that it, preeclampsia is um, a critical level of very high blood pressure experienced by some women during pregnancy, just as a, as a sort of like physical reaction to being pregnant and chocolate reduces the risk of that. So perhaps drinking it in the first trimester of pregnancy. And there's also some really interesting research, um, which I find just so fascinating about uh, Italian mothers being interviewed after their babies were born and the mothers who'd eaten chocolate during pregnancy were all found to report that their babies were happier at three months. And that's like that. That's wow. so fascinating because it's like, why were they happier? Were they happier because the mums were all high on chocolate? Were they happier because the mums were the kind of people because they like chocolate? They're the kind of people who had a better temperament anyway. Or were they happy because the chocolate affected their babies in the womb? Do you know what I mean? It's just like, anyway, whatever. So I could go on, but there, there, there are more traditional uses than that. But it was mainly it. Cacao was mainly drunk as a sort of sacrament and as a daily drink and as a tonic. Oh, and its most interesting traditional use to my mind was protecting against the ill effects of snake bite, which I do mention in chapter four. Oh. And it sounds completely wacko. And I would suggest to anyone, please don't try this at home. If you live in an area of the world with, with, with the dangerous snakes, don't just drink a load of chocolate and then think, I'm safe. I don't need any antivenin. Probably not going to work out well. But it is interesting because if cacao does, as the research is now suggesting, reduce inflammation in the linings of blood vessels, it reduces pain and it could reduce tissue damage by a variety of mechanisms, uh, which I go into in the book, then yeah, it could provide some protection from, from dying from some forms of snake venom. So yeah. Mm. Wow. Fascinating. I wanted um, to talk about, psychological bit more now and about intention because one of the things that okay. jumped out of me from the book was that the effect of chocolate on our systems is mediated by intention and in my intention when I ate chocolate as a child was to drown out anything unpleasant going on yes. in my mind or body and that's not positive mm -hmm. but I do believe that the intention with which you do anything affects what happens the intention with which you eat any food infects affects what you're going to get out of it but it seemed to me in the book that you were referring specifically to the to intention affecting the psychoactive effects yes. of chocolate yes that's right absolutely. yeah so could you explain to people who are listening briefly what the psychoactive effects of chocolate are and then how intention media <laughs> Okay. I'll, I, absolutely. I might do that in reverse order, Alison, if that's okay. okay. Yeah, just because, yeah. um, just because, but I absolutely will. Yes. I'll do my best. Um, all right. So in the intention thing comes from a couple of very small human experiments, uh, which I, I think I describe in, I think chapter five, um, where they, they got just ordinary eating chocolate. So dark chocolate, and, and gave it to people. And one of them, I think they compared it to just drinking water. And the other one, I think they compared it to an apple or dry crackers. <laughs> and they, in each case, they told people to um, try and eat them, eat or drink mindfully. 
and they found that in both those experiments that they're slightly different i'm 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 uh, conflating them a bit but i do go in, i describe both of them separately in the book i think um, they found in both those experiments, the bottom line was that only eating the chocolate mindfully produced a positive increase in mood. Uh, neither drinking water nor eating crackers nor an apple mindfully or not produced much of a much of a change on the mood scale thing, you know, whereas the chocolate did, but only only when it was eaten mindfully, if it was just eaten like, you know, they didn't tell them to concentrate on it or focus on anything. It didn't. So I thought that was very interesting. Now that sort of ties in with the, one of my hypotheses about the traditional use of, of, of cacao drinks as a sacrament. And uh, it was certainly a very important substance, which I go into the third section of the book about the mythology and its status in Mesoamerica uh, as a tree associated. It has associations with the underworld. It has association with the ancestors. It was certainly the beans were given as offerings representative of vital organs. Traditionally, cacao beverages were used as a symbol of, of the living blood, which was thought to contain the essence of the ancestors in offerings and stuff like that. So it, it, to my mind, seems to be used ritually as a facilitator of intention and also very practically in combination with certain hallucinogens. We know that traditionally it was eaten with magic or drunk rather alongside magic mushrooms um, at feasts, which sounds like it's just recreational party use, but it wasn't really because the mushrooms were eaten. They were a sacred drug. They were called Teonana cattle, which means God flesh. And they were eaten in order to get the visions from the gods to see the future. And chocolate was drunk alongside them. Now we don't know for sure whether chocolate was used as a potentiator, but it seems that it is. And I, I have that from both anecdotal experience. Many people I know who've taken psilocybin mushrooms and then drunk strong chocolate definitely enhances the effects, but also from the pharmacology. So this is where uh, it, it gets interesting because we have the, to my mind, because <laughs> you, you've got the, the, <clears throat> the caffeine and the theobromine, which are the sort of simple stimulants. The caffeine in cacao is your main basic stimulant. Um, so that's the thing that just makes your brain go a bit faster. Same as tea, same as coffee, same as guarana, same as mate, same as cola, same as, you know, whatever, in terms of the basic mechanism. <clears throat> but then you've also got the polyphenols, which I've mentioned, the antioxidant bits. Turns out that some of those polyphenols are monoamine oxidase inhibitors. What that means is that they inhibit or prevent the action of, at least to some extent, an enzyme called monoamine oxidase. This enzyme is responsible for uh, breaking down monoamines in the brain and in the body. Monoamines are substances like dopamine, serotonin, phenethylamine. These, you know, they do other things. There are other uh, monoamines like tyramine, whatever, but those monoamines, uh, dopamine, serotonin, you will be familiar with because they've become, you know, they've become well-known in popular culture as sort of like the happy chemicals or, you know, serotonin for relaxation and, and, and dopamine for motivation and that kind of thing. So the polyphenols will probably increase the level of those in the brain to some extent. And cacao also contains phenethylamine, tiny amounts of phenethylamine. Phenethylamine is a monoamine, which is one of the chemicals that your brain releases when it's in love and in other euphoric states. But typically you'd need to ingest about two grams of it to, to make a dent in your mood. And there's only like in a whole cup of traditional drinking chocolate, there's only, there's less than a milligram. However, 
drinking that in the presence of monoamine oxidase inhibitors, for example, some of the polyphenols in cacao can increase its level up to a thousand times in the brain. So that and, and there's also another chemical in the beans, trigonelline, which is also found in fenugreek seeds and interestingly in coffee that can ferry phenethylamine into the brain. It can get it into the blood through the blood brain barrier without getting broken down. And then there are these other little compounds called the linoleolethanolamines, which are basically like cannabinoids, but naturally like the, the brain's natural cannabinoid is anandamide and its function. One of its functions is in pain control and another of its functions might be in sort of soothing painful memories. You know, the thing which enables you to blur out painful memories. Otherwise, every time you got ill or broke a bone or something, you would have that agony with you forever. You know, thank God our brain knows how to produce not only endorphins, which kill pain, but also these natural cannabinoids like anandamide, which mediate that sort of memory a little bit smudge it so it's not so painful um so these tiny amounts of these so-called like endogenous cannabinoids anandamide and the linoleolethanolamines in cacao they're too small on their own again to do much but it turns out that two of them uh inhibit the breakdown of the other one so these two linoleolethanolamines inhibit the breakdown of anandamide so there's probably more of that ends up in the brain than you think so when you look at the chemistry on paper and you actually try to tease out all the different chemicals in cacao, which because I'm a, a nutter, I basically did or tried <laughs> to do and tabulated them in the back of the book, you realize that there are all these interactions. And then that seems to correlate really well with the human research. So there was that little bit of research, a little small trial with intention. But then you look at the sociological data, the fact that this uh, big um, epidemiological or sociological study, I should say, and I think, I think in the Netherlands, um, I think it was called the Zutphen Elderly Study conducted among elderly men, I think in the 90s. I think it was men between the ages of 60 odd and 70 odd or something. I, I forget, but. It's referenced in the book, but uh, older men, and they, they took a, a large sample size of, I think, between 1,000, 2,000 men, a, a, a decent cross-section of the elderly population, just to, obviously, you know, a small amount relative to the whole population, but a good number. And they assessed their eating habits and they matched them all for exercise and smoking, whatever, whatever. And they found that... Um, the, the elderly men who ate more chocolate rated themselves as being happier, were more sociable, um, generally were more healthy. And then in other studies where they've looked at chocolate consumption habits, this seems to be replicated. And yet, and yet, of course, we know that, that there are these, uh, some people with eating disorders have problems with chocolate. But so then the question becomes, is the problem there with the sugar and the fat? Or is it with the, the sugar and the fat and the mindset that people have? And there was one really interesting uh, bit that I took from, this is from another uh, brilliant book by, edited by Shoggy, um, a book, I can't remember the name of the book, that's so bad, but it's called Chocolate Something or Other. But I used quite a few little excerpts in and referenced a lot in the book. And this was a, a bit of research they did, I think, in um, Hofstra University in New York in the 90s, where they interviewed, they just interviewed a bunch of students on campus about their eating habits and their attitudes to foods. And one of the top words that came up uh, associated with chocolate, that, that the top words that came up were sort of like joyful and, and stuff like that. Another of the top words that came up was guilt. And uh, then I looked at some of the research into eating disorders and they found that um, guilt 
after eating any food would would completely diminish any 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 sort of um, psychological benefits that might have been derived from eating. That blew my mind when I read that bit. That you know, really, since I had that problem with chocolate twenty years ago, I feel around that and around other foods on and off various levels of guilt or I have done right. and to think that I'm blocking or I have been blocking in the past benefits of foods yeah. by feeling guilt actually physically chemically blocking not just making yeah. myself feel bad that just blew my mind it's fascinating isn't it it's absolutely fascinating look one of the things I'm into as a herbalist is something I call it the methadone method which is which is actually a terrible name for it because methadone is arguably chemically even worse than heroin but you know not not that i'm advocating you know what i mean but it's 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 kind of quite addictive but the the the, the what i mean by the methadone method is if you can find something which you once regarded as a vice like a vice or a bad habit and swap it for something that gives you the same fix but is actually good for you you are winning you know, you are winning because that's like, it's not the Tony Robbins method, which would be like to just smash through it and, you know, go to be your higher self at all times. I'm more of a, like set a low bar and stick to it kind of a person, you know, <laughs> just, just, but the, the, the methadone method thing is like, so something like that with cacao, which is inherently has so many useful uh, properties and potential health benefits. If you can just go to a form of that food, which is actually good for you, you can still get your fix and not, you know, not knack your health. Up. And just by changing your attitude to it, you, you can change your whole relationship with the food. And, and that, that mindset is probably transferable to other things, but there are two components. I do want to emphasize that there are two components here. The first component is your mindset. But the second component is the actual physical composition of the food. And, and make no mistake, we know that sugar, uh, refined sugar is not good for you. <laughs> and certainly that combination of refined sugar and fat is inherently if not addictive, then certainly habituating and, and, and lubricates that addictive potential, you know? So, yeah. I think it's really interesting to, to read in the book that no traditional cultures who use cacao have any addictive issues with it. And I think, mm. you know, that's obviously partly due to what you've just said, the sugar and the other components that are in chocolate, partly due to industrialization, partly well, due to the way it was used. And it, it seems... There's a parallel in some other research I'm doing around beer in that no traditional cultures who made beer themselves and fermented it have any problems with alcohol. And it's, it's just amazing how... I mean yeah, we take gonna, it out of context. And it yes, everything. 100%. I, I am going to slightly not put a spoke in it because I agree with that. I think that's true, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to do the, the, the counterpoint a little bit, which is that mm. um, all those cultures, which have been introduced to cacao have become in one form or another instantly obsessed with it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's certainly got some power in, in, in relation to the human psyche. Um, same with many, anything, same with anything psychotropic or even any food, which is recognized as being pleasurable. So that's not to say it's bad and it's, it's, we've got to avoid that sort of black and white thinking, but 
it's it's correct that I think our the relation that we hold with that food or substance is really important. That the analogy that I often make. Uh, for example, is with like coca leaf. I mentioned that in the passing in the book, although I don't go into detail, but you know, coca leaf, which is, was used as the source of cocaine, uh, chewed in the Andes for, you know, millennia, long time. Uh, do some native people have problems with coca leaves? Actually, yes, not many. Not many, but there it is known. I mean, if there's a great book called Mama Coca by written by a guy called Antonil, pseudonym. I actually met his his nephew. I trained Tai Chi with him, and it turned out that his grandfather, his 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 uncle, was the guy who wrote the book, which I was really excited about. But it's written about coca leaves, and um, it is rare, but you can get Native American uh, people who who just chew coca all the time, so they they can become addicted to it. But it's rare, and that they're said to be like um, you know in in a relationship with Mama Coca or something. But um, it's much less habituating. But the minute you extract that alkaloid from it and start snorting it, you change the whole pharmacokinetics. You haven't got all the other compounds in the plant, yada yada. But also looking at it from a traditional point of view, that leaf was a sacrament it was regarded mm. as a physical embodiment of a spiritual force and it had value to the people we went we as in our ancestors as in you know humans uh, in general went in there and uh invaded and took that sacrament and then filleted it and mm. commodified it and then it's no surprise if Mama Coca turns around, and takes a bite out of your backside. You know, that's 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 one <laughs> one view I have of it. You know, if you go and profane someone's sacrament, don't be surprised if that sacrament then profanes you. And this is my big hippie magical thinking mindset. This is why I'm a herbalist and not a pharmacist, folks. But you know, I I do like that. I think what's true on one level, you can look at it on the level of allegory and myth, and you can also look at it on the level of straight up pharmacology. And it, it can be, it can be passed in either, in, in either way, I think. Yeah. Andrea, how are you feeling about um, what Marcus is saying? I'm sure you're going to jump in. Oh man, this is so, I, the whole time you're talking, I'm thinking through the list of people in my head. Oh, I know she'll love to listen to this. And oh, we were just talking about that. <laughs> so <laughs> I just can't wait till this gets published so I can start sending it out. But so if I, I love how you preambled the talk a little bit by saying, you know, yes, the modern culture has created some new versions of, you know, use of chocolate that was never seen before. In traditional history and you're not saying that that's entirely evil in fact i really appreciate that you're eliminating some of those black and white terms from our language because yeah. I, I do agree with you that a lot of the um popular diet fads really feed into disordered yes. eating and i kind of have this personal pet theory that a lot of binge eating is because we're actually malnourished and and our body yes. is trying yeah. to force us to, to get some nutrition of course we're seeking it in all the wrong places and um I would, know, I would agree I would, profaning I would, sacraments as you said all over the place <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah yeah well uh, yes exactly that's 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 exactly true i mean that's uh you can you can look at um uh, it's a, literally my body is a temple kind of thing, you know, if, right. you, if you turn it around in that way, for sure. I mean, I, I think um, the, the malnourishment is for sure. I mean, that's known for a long time. You know, a lot of the, the, the composition of the foods is an issue. If we kind of made mm -hmm. some foods that don't contain the right nutrients, like fast foods and whatever, then they, they um, 
facilitate that kind of abusive relationship with the food. But then at the same time, there's, there's a psychological dimension too. And, you know, neither, it's not a case of either or, it's a case of both and. And I think the meta narrative above those is our, is our, um, what's the word, is our ideology, is our cultural ideology. And for me, and this is where I'm way out on a limb and as, you know, nutty little herbalist, for me, that is materialism. That is physicalist materialism. So I'm not saying, I'm not advocating a return to ancient religious theist <laughs> ideology. I'm not saying that we go back to the kind of Mesoamerican theocracy where they're like doing live human sacrifices <laughs> to make sure the sun rises. No, but I am saying that, you know, with there's there's always... I don't know, this is possible, possibly cynical, but I think it's just literally true. There's always a price. There's always a downside to something. Mm -hmm. And with our, with our new mechanistic understanding of the world, we've kind of, um, we've kind of de devalued everything in terms of its, you know, because in, in an old sort of uh, magical or religious worldview, everything had spiritual value and import. So every action you had or took had meaning. And it's like that quote, I, I really like the quote from, oh, what was his phrase? Uh, um, the guy who was interned in the prison camps in the second world war a psychotherapist famous i can't Frankel. thank you thank you alice and that's his name you know where he said uh, despair is suffering without meaning you know mm. and, and and that yeah. is huge that's huge because one of the side effects of materialism is that it essentially divests us of meaning in multiple dimensions yeah. obviously this is part of the the conversation that we're having more broadly nowadays i mean it needn't but I, I think it ultimately sort of does. So we need to sort of re-examine some of our, our assumptions. Um, anyway, I mean, I get really metaphysical in the third section of the book, talk about consciousness and stuff. That's one of those um, aforementioned Trojan horses that I, <laughs> mm -hmm. I like to sort of wheel in. But just I, I do think that, you know, these these things all have deep roots you know when you can get in take any subject as a starting point and and go into it but chocolate is 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 a, a much deeper subject than people realize because it was once a sacrament yeah well I, I totally i love what you're saying and i really appreciate what you're saying too and part of the kind of the premise that allison and i started this podcast on and and the way that we eat in my family is not necessarily um you know make your life mission to cast out all the evil you know food that exist <laughs> but more to draw in all the good and especially the yes. older traditional because what we have found in our own home is the more we pull that in your desire for those things that are filling the gaps in your starvation just it drops and then they can become i yes. think like you and allison both alluded to you know little pleasurable asides um that aren't you know, they're not totally demonized. Yeah. Um, they're just not needed as much. And I wonder if Allison, when you were eating those, uh, I had to look up what a kilogram is. <laughs> That's a lot of chocolate. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, quite, it's, quite, it's quite a volume. It's a yeah. hefty volume. Is that? Yeah, I'm impressed. Um, but w when you're eating that, I wonder if you're, you know, I remember reading a long time ago that um, you know, always listen to your body's cravings and they're very wise. But if your body has only ever known 
kind of these modern foods, then you interpret the cravings incorrectly. So you are craving, you know, protein. And so you think Cheetos, cause that's like cheese, you know, um, <laughs> don't, you know, if you've not been exposed to the good things. So I wonder if you were just devouring that chocolate because you knew that some of these healing benefits mm-hmm. that Marcos is talking about and these kind of, um, happy asides were there for you, but you just didn't know how to get to them. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And it's, um, it's takes a long, it's a long journey in healing that kind of thing. It's certainly been mm. a long journey for me, but the more that, um, I nourish my body, the less my body asks for things that are nourishing. It's right. And then the less you have to say no to your body and then the less yeah. you have to feel guilt and then the more benefit you get from the foods and just yeah. all the happy things go up. Yeah. Totally. So- I mean, yeah. That. Well, one of the things I used to do, I've had a couple of clients since then just privately as a, as a herbalist who'd had, had binge eating and obviously people's reasons are different for, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in eating disorders. I don't, I'm not a specialist in mental health. I have no training as a psychologist or whatever. So have to preamble things with that disclaimer. But what I noted, one of the simple strategies that I've used is just to get people to, um, get a little tuck box a little binge box in a way like get a box of food then fill it with whole food versions of everything Mm. so like peanut butter um you know wholemeal crackers um dark chocolate or you know something healthier um just healthy versions of stuff like nuts fruit dried fruit bars made out of nuts and dried fruit so and then to say if you want to binge just binge on anything from there just as much Mm. as you want because i guarantee you'll be filled up far more quickly it is hard (laughs) <laughs> hard it's hard i mean it's hard work but i mean and, and for most most i don't think for all but for most that worked really well they were just like yeah this is this is great i, I just i i did want to be and of course but of course there's always some people who they're gonna there's some other element to to yeah. the the addiction to the binging where they'll they'll find a way out of that or around it and and, and go and go and grab the, the junk foods in some other way so mm-hmm. It, it, these things are complex, but I do think you're probably right, Alison. There's a level of and 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 Andrea about there being a level of self-medicating there, and I think mm-hmm. as as humans, as as a society, we're constantly self-medicating. I mean, smoking, coffee. Um, I mean, and not all of this. I'm not to say this is always a bad thing. It's just it depends what the long-term effects on your health are and what what you're what you're trying to keep a lid on because i have another little phrase that i I, I use a lot which is whatever gets pushed down from the top comes out the sides so (laughs) if you're trying to use things to suppress feelings those feelings will come out in other unhealthy ways won't they so but but there's it's interesting because cacao does i loved what you said andrea about drawing in the good i don't know if you got that from the book but that's why one of the traditional uses of cacao in mesoamerican ritual was to attract good that is literally what they use it for in in modern day uh curanderismo they use chilies to repel bad and cacao to attract good so i thought that was that was great that you used Mm. that phrase because i think um probably even using chocolate in that quote unquote unhealthy or compulsive way, you're going to be short circuiting many of the benefits. And of course it depends on, on the form of the chocolate you were eating, Alison, if it was like there was hardly any brown stuff in it and it was mostly sugar or milk, then obviously that probably, but you'd have still got some benefits from the microbiomes and even using it in that way. I wonder if 
metaphorically speaking, the plant would have been putting its little roots inside you and making a few little changes, you know, you just don't, because these things, I, I think we're, we're in a conversation with these things all the time. And sometimes it takes, you know, like, like it takes you to change the way that you're speaking to the other person for the other person to change the way they speak to you. And I don't think it's any different for our relationships with food or with our environment or with anything else. So much of it is it's, it's, it's an interactive process. When you pull the levers, the levers pull, pull you, if that makes sense. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You can't take yourself outside the box. You can't. I mean, that's, the, that's the, that's the scientific uh, myth. And it's very useful for devising experiments for controlled experiments and getting data that we can use to make decisions. But in, in, in real life, there are so many factors acting on us that it, um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying there, but I think, I think, I think, I think the, you, you get the point that, that self-medicating with chocolate, even though it might have been, there may have been a level of that. And even if it might've been unhealthy that I agree, Andrea, that it was probably doing something useful potentially as well. Maybe, hmm. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'll have one more question and then I'll kick it back to Alison. So, um, okay. This is my question. If I'm listening to this podcast and, you know, a lot of us have only grown up with the exposure to things like cocoa, um, like hot, hot chocolate, like, you know, with sugar um, or Hershey's chocolate bars or whatever. And we listen to you talking about all these fascinating uses and benefits of chocolate when it's in, uh, you know, I don't know if you want to say pure state or whatever, more traditional application where what ah, where can you get it (laughs) where do i begin what do i do (laughs) right okay okay so there's there's two things you could do if you want to go from scratch like the traditional method you need to buy some cacao beans and you ideally want some criollo cacao beans you can get criollo or forastero forastero are the hybrid form that mostly you know, nowadays, mostly grown on the East coast of Africa, or but you can get the Criollo beans are the slightly posher ones, but you just get some beans, you toast them on a Kamal and you can find all the details about how to toast chocolate on the internet. There are many websites and blogs that talk about this. I think, um, Max Grocer has a really good description of how to make traditional drinking chocolate on it. Um, good step-by-step description, but you toast the beans um, until the skins are slightly charred. You just toast them on a, on a, a in an open pan or ideally on a clay kamal or on a clay dish, but any open pan will do just medium to low flame, toast them until the skins are charred. You keep turning them. It'll take about 20 to 40 minutes. And then you take them out, let them cool. You shell them, you peel all the shells off. It takes ages. Um, (laughs) And then you would grind them and you can use a high speed blender. Um, So like if you've got an old Vitamix or whatever, or a metate, which is a stone grinding table that you can order online. Uh, some of them are quite expensive. Don't get one of the little dinky ones. Otherwise, you'll, you know, it'll take forever and, and you'll lose the will to live. Uh, and you <laughs> could potentially grind them in a mortar and pestle, but just don't because it doesn't work very well. You'll get RSI. You won't be happy. So do it either in a high speed blender or on a, a metate. Um, this stone grinding table. So that, and then once it's ground to a smooth liquid, uh, you can then, if you wish, add some powdered spices and grind it again. So like powdered vanilla, powdered 
cinnamon, powdered chili, whatever, mm. and grind it again, and then pour that onto greaseproof paper, not wax paper, unless you enjoy wax flavored chocolate. Greaseproof <laughs> paper. I made that mistake once. We'll never make it again. Um, so, a greaseproof paper. The traditional way uh, in well, not traditional, but the modern way in Miso America would be to use a banana leaf, a shiny evergreen leaf, but um, uh, greaseproof paper is obviously what most of us will, will have access to that. Uh, just pour little puddles of it on the greaseproof paper, allow it to set, and then store those in a sealed container, airtight sealed container in the fridge. And then whenever you want to drink, you just break one of those tablets up into a little jug and you pour on boiling water and you whisk it until it's really frothy and uh, then you drink it. Um, so uh, and there's loads of recipes in the book that are based on traditional um, formulations. So if you want loads of recipes, there's loads of recipes in chapter eight of my book, but that's the basic method. If all that sounds a bit too labor intensive and you think I can't clone myself, I don't have time to do this, <laughs> then your other option is to buy blocks of couverture. That is just straight up ground cacao mass. Now you can buy the industrially made blocks like Valrona or one of these posh chocolate companies will make those blocks that are just uh, industrially roasted and then ground up cacao beans. No added extra fat because the beans are already 50% fat and no added sugar. Uh, and then you just grate those and add a bit of uh, spices of your choice. Like again, whatever you fancy, vanilla, allspice, whatever, uh, and, and or any sweetening, if you like it, a bit of maple syrup or honey, and then whisk it, make a drink out of that. Uh, there's also, and I'll give you the links for this, guys. There's uh, uh, someone I partner with who uh, runs a company, Dea, um, runs a company called Cacao Amor, and she'll give um, 20% off for anyone who, I'll give you the discount code for that that maybe you could put in the show notes. She does blocks of, 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 of good quality cacao. Um, there's also someone I've worked with who does um, uh, blocks of cacao from South America, uh, Rebecca Sharman. She also does uh, blocks of drinking chocolate. They're all quite different, but if I would advocate, if you can, get the beans and do the whole process from start to finish because it's it is so much fun. Ah, oh, bless so you, Alison. I mean, you, but you, you're like, well, I suppose your listenership will be as well. I was going to say you're a foodie, you know, so we all are. <laughs> that's why we're here. But uh, hopefully, yeah, I, I, I think so. I think it's the only way it's like what you, you guys are always saying about making the bread, unless you do it from scratch, you just, this, you learn so much doing it that way. So, and the quality is so much better. And, you know, yeah. And it's been great. I mean, if you've got kids, I involve my seven-year-old in it. I'm, I'm doing the roasting and then he's helping me peel and we're kind of getting all the um, shells off in the wind and he's helping me Amazing. grind and he chooses which, which spices he wants in his version. And today we made some this morning, put a tiny bit of sugar in it for him. Oh, and then he's got some moulds and he puts it all in. He's made his own chocolates for the next like three or four weeks. <laughs> Such fun. Brilliant. I recommend that, that everyone have a go at it. Um, if they can, because it, you know, the closer you get to your food, the more you love it, the more you understand it, the more you value it. And also, totally. yeah, it's just, it's such a fun thing to do. Totally. Yeah. And all, the, the only difficult, I mean, the labor involved. Yeah. That, that takes a bit of time, but the only thing is sourcing the beans, get some good Criollo cacao beans, get them off Tinternet. And um, then it's the grinding. So for that, you, you really do need either a, a, a metate or a, a good blender, um, a really good blender, <laughs> you know? 
So if you got can get your hands on one of those things, you can do it in a mortar and pestle, but it is an extreme form of masochism I would not recommend. <laughs> I'm getting my husband to it. He's got bigger arm muscles than me. <laughs> you make him run up the hill for the milk and now you're making yeah, him grind. Because, because you see, they, they liquefy as you're grinding, obviously. So yeah. the metate being a flat surface, you're grinding it out of the flat surface. And that does two things. It helps evaporate some of the acids from fermentation so you lose a bit of the sharpness of the flavor and it just gets a much more even smooth liquid with the mortar and pestle as it turns into a liquid well you know what it's like it's like you're just churning and churning and churning and churning and it, you don't get that evaporation of the acids quite as much so it doesn't mellow the flavor in the same way um which a, a, a high-speed blender won't mellow the flavor either but it'll you know reduces anything to liquid that but it just it just takes ages in a mortar and pestle i've done it once and i was like Never again. <laughs> I've also My found, husband says that quite often. <laughs> never again. I've also found that when you uh, prepare foods at home traditionally, it actually modulates how much you consume of them to a more normal level. So if Absolutely. Allison is grinding oh, yes. this by hand, she's not Absolutely. going to be putting away five kilos at a time because it's just, it's just too no. much work. Because no <laughs> you value it. Yeah. Right. That's, that's the value a good point. Is, is completely different. And I believe that's, you know, part of the reason that um, so much has changed for me because slowly, slowly I've been valuing my foods because I'm mm. making myself. And you just, my son absolutely values his chocolates because he made them. And that's an intentional thing on my part to enable yes. him to value his food. You know? I love it. I love it. That's brilliant. So, anyway, we have gone way over time and <laughs> I've just still got a million things that I wanted to ask you. Um, so, um, unfortunately, I'm going to have to push those back down. They'll, they'll come out of the sides, like you said, and have to have you back on the podcast. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully not, in, yeah, you know, in, in helpful <laughs> ways. Rather than... yeah. Where can people find you if they want to buy your book, if they want to know more about your book, the work that you do, where can they find you, Marcus? Brilliant. Thank you, Alison. Um, yeah, the probably the best thing is the the website for the book is called thesecretlifeofchocolate.com. That's all one word, thesecretlifeofchocolate.com. Um, and that has links to places you can buy it and sort of bits and bobs. So that's probably the best place for that. Um, I've also got a little, very, very tiny YouTube channel, which has all my, um, just a few little videos. It's just me rambling on about stuff called, uh, the nocturnal herbalist. Um, it's only a very small channel at the moment. Um, and that's me. There's a few videos on there about chocolate. There's a few videos on there about one of my other very left field passions, which is uh, medieval astrology, which I just find endlessly fascinating. And there's videos on there, of course, about herbal medicine and pharmacology and medicine and stuff like that. So um, those are probably the best places. Um, yeah. And there's, uh, there's my, my website as a herbalist is nocturnalherbalist.com. Andrew, is there anything else you want to ask before we finish? Pages, but we'll have to save it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you ever so much for your time. And thank you ever so much for writing the book, Marcus. It's been a joy to talk to you and to explore the subject further. Well, thank you, guys. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, and I really am enjoying your, your podcast. I, I love it. It's so nice to listen to people who are so enthusiastic about food and actively experimenting with stuff. And it's, it's, I love it. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth 
and Alison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Thank you.